on November 9th, 1938, 267 synagogues across Germany were vandalized, many destroyed and set ablaze. This is one such synagogue. It has come to be known as Kristallnacht, Kristallnight, the night of shattered glass, of broken glass. Synagogues, Jewish businesses were shattered, the glass lying in the streets with no intervention from the authorities. Why the synagogue? Today we'll talk about synagogues, how the synagogues are a center for Jewish life, for religious life, for communal life. And here's another picture of a Jewish business. It's glass windows shattered. What has this got to do with Ezekiel? Have you ever tasted Ezekiel bread? What has Ezekiel got to do with synagogues? We'll touch upon that as well. Welcome to Lunch and Learn. It's Tuesday afternoon. Time to study Torah together. This is our weekly session where we take 60 minutes or so every week to explore another topic from Jewish sources. And hopefully after 60 minutes or so, we'll have a better understanding of the topic of the synagogue, who invented the synagogue, and we'll focus in on the design, the architecture, the building of the synagogue, the significance of the synagogue, its place in Jewish life. Uh, we'll leave prayers and services for another discussion. Today we'll talk about the actual synagogue building. And this has got to do with the time of the year where we find ourselves in the nine-day period in the month of Av, leading up to Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, which marks the anniversary of the destruction of the first and second temple of Jerusalem, and this is closely related to synagogues, as we will see. Let's begin with a blessing. If you have a, a drink, let's say a blessing with me. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Malach Olam Shachol Niyah Bidvaro. As usual, we have a source sheet to follow along in the lesson English. Translated sources from Torah, from Talmud, from Halacha, and it is divided into four sections uh, to make it easier to follow along. Hello, Amy. Hello, Brian. Hello, everyone joining live and joining later. And we'll begin in just a moment. The synagogue, every community should have, has a synagogue. Perhaps cities have many synagogues, and the synagogue is the symbol of Jewish life. And a very important structure in Jewish community, community life. So we'll take a look at how this all got started and what this means to each and every one of us living in the year 2022, the Jewish year 5782. Let's jump right in. Have you ever tasted Ezekiel bread? Doesn't taste very good, at least to me. Maybe it's healthy. Why is it called Ezekiel bread and how does Ezekiel impact uh, the synagogue? So <clears throat> there are thousands of synagogues that were constructed over the years. 
And it all goes back to 3,334 years ago, to the first kind of synagogue. Let's jump right into our first source. Source number one. Make me a sanctuary and I will dwell in their midst. That's the opening words. This is a quote from the book of Shemos, the book of Exodus. The Jewish people are shortly after their liberation from Egypt. They stood at Mount Sinai seven weeks later, received the Ten Commandments and the Torah. And subsequently, after a couple of months, they received an instruction from God while living in the desert to build, to make a sanctuary, in Hebrew a mikdash, to make a sanctuary for God, and I will dwell in their midst. God says, Vishachanti, and I will dwell, I will rest in their midst in this temple. They should make an edifice, they should make a building, a structure in their camp. Jewish people were probably about two to three million souls at the time. And they continued to live in the desert, wandering for 40 years. And God says, God is everywhere, but God says, make for me a home. You all have your home, you have your tent, your place where you live. Make for me a home. Make for me a dwelling place. Make me a sanctuary and I will dwell in their midst. And that's what the Jewish people did. At first, in the, for the 40 years in the desert, they built a tabernacle called in Hebrew a mishkan, which was a movable tent or a movable kind of structure made of wooden planks and um, material coverings as a roof from wool and other materials. And this structure stood in the center of the Jewish camp. And when this structure was completed, it was made from all kinds of different materials, gold, silver, and others, the cloud covered the tent and the presence of God filled the tabernacle. It's called Mikdash because it is the tabernacle of God. Says Ibn Ezra, one of the commentators on the Torah, it's called Mikdash, Mikdash. Bet HaMikdash, or Mikdash. God says, make for me a Mikdash. Mikdash comes from the word Kodesh. Kodesh means holy, Shabbat Kodesh. Or Kiddush, which is the blessing where we verbally sanctify the Shabbos. Or Kaddish, which is a sacred prayer where we glorify God's name. And many other such words. The Mikdash is a home which is holy because it is a house for God. It is a house where God dwells. Just like our home we dwell in, we live in, and we're comfortable in. The temple, starting with the portable temple called the Mishkan, which Mishkan also means, Mishkan comes the word Shekhinah, which means resting. Because God rested in this structure. And later when they came to Israel, after 40 years in the desert, they crossed the Jordan River led by Yehoshua, by Joshua. They built more of a permanent structure eventually in Shiloh. And then finally through King David and King Solomon, they built a big, huge, beautiful temple on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. The first temple which stood for 410 years, which was a magnificent building. And later a second temple was built after the first was destroyed. What was the purpose, the function of this building? God says, 
You shall make for me a home. It's one of the 613 commandments. To make for me a home and I will dwell in your midst. A home for God. A place for God to dwell in. As the verse says that once the building, the structure was completed, the cloud, which was representing God's presence, rested over the tent, over this structure. So that's our uh, departure point for today, beginning with a building, a structure designated for God. Source number two, what happens is that after 410 years of King Solomon's temple standing in Jerusalem in all its glory, come the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the dominant world superpower of the time, and destroys the temple. Of course, the prophet, Jewish prophet foresaw this, and it was as a result of the Jewish uh, behavior in Israel, idol worship and other things. But the temple was destroyed, and now the Jews are taken and banished from their land to the east of Israel, to Babylonia, modern-day Iraq, or maybe bottom of Saudi Arabia. And now there's no temple. The temple is destroyed. And here is where we first see um, the creation of synagogues, of houses of worship on a large scale. Source number two, this comes from the book of Ezekiel. So again, Ezekiel is the book of the prophets, one of the books of the entire Tanakh, the entire Torah. He was a prophet that lived during the destruction of the first temple into the exile, and his book with 50-so chapters is a fascinating book. And in chapter 4, it describes God telling Ezekiel about certain bread um, recipe that the Jewish people should eat as a sign of the impending destruction. It's actually a bread with no flour, it's just uh, sprouts and stuff which don't taste very good, and it's a very dense bread, and it's a bread of poverty. Um, I don't know who made the actual Ezekiel bread for mass production, but in the, in the book, it's described as a bread for the hungry, for the poor, and that's the only thing that, that's available, so they're going to eat it anyways. Either way, uh, that comes from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 4. You can check it up, the ingredients in today's Ezekiel bread, uh, whatever company that makes it is pretty much accurate to what it says in the book. But later on in the book uh, of Ezekiel, in chapter 11, we have a prophecy that God tells Ezekiel to tell the Jewish people, although, in source 2, although I have removed them far off among the nations, I have become for them a minor sanctuary in the lands where they have come referring to the synagogues in Babylonia. The Talmud says this verse, where God tells Ezekiel that I have become for them a minor sanctuary. So there was a large sanctuary 
which was the temple in Jerusalem, which was a huge building, and it had the ark there with the tablets and the menorah and all the amazing things that were made by Moses and later. And then the Jews are scattered. They are sent into foreign lands, the Babylonia mostly. And although there's no temple, God says they shall not despair. I have become for them a minor sanctuary. The Hebrew is Mikdash Ma'at. The Beit HaMikdash, the holy temple in Jerusalem, is known as the holy temple. Beit HaMikdash, the sacred home, the sacred house. And then, during the exile, God tells Ezekiel, I will be for them a minor sanctuary, a Mikdash Ma'at, a mini temple. What does this refer to? Many temples. Says the Talmud, this is a reference to the synagogues in Babylonia. The Jewish people are far from their homeland. There is no central home for God. But God says there is going to be many homes in the synagogues. The synagogues in some way take the place of the central uh, uh, temple in Jerusalem. The synagogues, the houses of worship that the Jewish people built in Babylonia were a somewhat of a continuation and directly, directly linked to the Grand Temple of Jerusalem. Hello Jody, welcome back. We're talking today about synagogues and we're seeing how the synagogues sprung up mostly in place of the central Holy Temple of Jerusalem. Synagogue is a Greek word. Sun, sin, I I think means to come together and together and uh, agog or agag, something like that means to bring. So to bring together, sin, agog, together bring. It's a place to meet. That's what the synagogue mainly is. And this went on during the 70 years of exile in Babylonia. And then... Uh, many of the Jewish people went back to Israel to rebuild the temple for the second temple era, which lasted for 420 years, but many Jews stayed in Babylonia, and synagogues started to become more of a center for Jewish life in every Jewish community. And even during the second temple era in Jerusalem, many synagogues were built there as houses of prayer, because at that time, Ezra and his court, which we... We'll talk about perhaps in a different lesson. Uh, established the official prayer system. Prayer was around as one of the mitzvot of the Torah, but more regulated three times a day. Reinstituted the concept and formulated the text of the prayers, and that this shall be done in a communal manner with a minion, with a, with a quorum, with ten people, and so a synagogue, a a house of worship was necessary for people to come together to pray and synagogues began to become more of a center um, in Jewish communities. Primarily used for prayer, but later used for study, Torah study and other functions as well as we will see. But let's focus here on the first idea of today's lesson in this section that the synagogues are a miniature temple. And just like the original great temple, God says clearly that it is a home for God. Build me a sanctuary and I will dwell in their midst. So too in the synagogues tells us Ezekiel that it is a minor sanctuary for God. Every synagogue 
is God's home, a place where He can be manifested and dwell in, and therefore is a sacred place. Source number three. When Yechaniah and his exile left, Yechaniah was one of the kings of Judah shortly before the first temple's destruction. So when they left Israel to go into exile, they carried some of the stones and the earth of Jerusalem to build a synagogue for themselves in Babylon. They're going away from the temple. They're going away from Jerusalem. So they took some of the stones, the holy stones, uh, an earth to build somewhat of a temple, a mini temple, a structure, a synagogue for, in Babylon. Come and see how beloved the Jewish people are before God. As every place they were exiled, the divine presence went with them. Says the Talmud, the divine presence that was in Israel with the Jewish people in the temple didn't forsake and abandon their, his people, God's people. They went along. This is a term in Aramaic called Shinta Begaluta. The divine presence is also in the exile with us. When it was Babylonia, whether here in America or wherever Jewish people are, there's a synagogue. The Shekhinah, God's presence is there too. He can not limit it to one place. It can be in many places at the same time. He created space and time and its limitations. <clears throat> Source number four. Included in this mitzvah is the obligation to build synagogues. The Zohar actually is of the opinion that the original mitzvah that God gave to the Jewish people in the desert to build a temple that I can dwell wasn't a one-time commandment. It is actually fulfilled somewhat through building synagogues. Wherever we are, even out of Israel, in Jeru out of Jerusalem, in the exile, wherever we live, we build a synagogue. We're somewhat fulfilling the biblical commandment of building a structure for God to dwell in. Because it is a minor temple, it is a minor home for God. That's what God says Himself. And Rabbi Yitzhak would say, continuing in Source 4, God is found in the synagogue. You want to, God can be found anywhere. We want to have some maybe better connection, uh, more service on our um, Wi-Fi. Then the synagogue is a good place. That is the place where God is found. In the future, the synagogues in Babylonia will be transported and reestablished in Israel. The Talmud says that the Babylonian synagogues, and really synagogues when Jews left Babylonia, wherever they established synagogues, would eventually, in the times of Mashiach, in the future, be transported and relocated back to Israel. And according to some, will actually be attached to the third temple that will be built. Because all synagogues are many temples. So all synagogues will join the great third temple as a grand home for God. Source number five. It's not just a nice thing to do. Halacha Jewish law tells us that whenever, source five, whenever ten Jews live, it is necessary to establish a place for them to congregate for prayer, called a base knesses. The inhabitants of a city can compel each other to construct a synagogue. They're able to have like a tax that everybody needs to contribute to the building of a synagogue. Because just like there needs to be a mikvah for family life, 
There needs to be a school for education. There needs to be a synagogue where Jewish people can come together and fulfill the Torah's mandate of prayer as it was taught to us by the high court in a communal manner, a home for God. We make a home for ourselves, we make a home for God. So in English, or in Greek, it's synagogue, now in English. In Hebrew, it's Beit Knesset. Knesset means gathering. Kenes, kinus, is a conference. Uh, gathering, because that is what this is. It is a place to gather together. That's why in Israel, the Knesset, the parliament, is called the Knesset. It is a gathering of 120 Knesset members. In Yiddish, it's called a shul. It's really German. German uh, or shule is a school because many times this communal building was not just for prayers. It was used for Torah teaching as the Torah is read. Part of the service is studying the Torah for lectures. And many times an actual Talmud Torah or school, Jewish school, would be housed in the synagogue building. There would be classrooms, Hebrew school, and so on. So it was called the shule, and in short, it's called the shul. There are some other names, maybe a shtibol. A shtibol is somewhat of a home that was converted into a shul, somewhat of an informal kind of synagogue with more tables and chairs, not just benches, and um, more hamish. Um, those are that's what that, that's what it is. It's a shul, a synagogue, and one more source. Source number six. It is a mitzvah to rush when going to the synagogue, the holy place. We're excited to go there, but upon arriving at the entrance of the synagogue, it is proper to pause slightly, not in order not to enter suddenly. You should tremble with awe before the splendor of His glory, blessed be His name. And then you should enter and walk with reverence and fear as one walks before a king. Therefore, a synagogue customarily has a foyer, it has a lobby that you might run to synagogue, but before you actually enter the sanctuary to pray to God, one should pause, contemplate. This is a home for God. This is where God dwells. It's like before you walk into the Oval Office or a King's Chamber, this is a special place. This is the King of all kings, creator of heaven and earth. This is where he dwells. He dwelled in the great temple in Jerusalem as God testified himself. And he said that he dwells in a minor fashion, a minor sanctuary in the synagogues. So this is God's home. Before we enter, we should contemplate that for a moment. So there's a lobby, there's a foyer. You go in, get, pick your coat off, wipe your shoes, uh, and mentally prepare yourself for entering God's chamber, the synagogue. That's section one, where we see how a synagogue is a mini temple, a home for God. And after this foundation, this principle, we'll understand second section, second section dedicated to the architecture, the pieces of furniture of the synagogue that in a way replicate the actual temple building and vessels. Now that we know that the synagogue is somewhat in place of the holy temple, 
will understand some of the design of every synagogue building. But synagogues were visited uh, by many of the presidents of the uh, United States. It's somewhat of a tradition, I believe, that the president pay uh, at least a visit or participate in some sort of service or ceremony. Um, the first recorded in the 1700s, 1781, I believe, George Washington visited the Newport Synagogue in... the Turo Synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island. Um, George W. Bush visited in St. Petersburg eh, when they restored the Great Choral Synagogue in 2002. He visited, and many other presidents visited or participated in synagogues in Washington, D.C., or other, Texas, other places. Um, the Jewish synagogue, this is a very holy and sacred place. And that is why the Nazis made their name be erased on Kristallnacht, on the night of Broken Glass, November 9th and 10th, 1938. They desecrated and destroyed 267 synagogues across Germany. Because this was the life of the Jewish community. This is the home for God, who they tried to blot out. Let's move on to our second section. Source number seven. So if you've been around the world on vacations uh, or here, you may have seen some beautiful, magnificent synagogues. In Jerusalem, there is a synagogue called the Belzer. Uh, it's called the Belzer Temple, a holy temple, because it's a huge building, similar looking a little bit to the actual temple built by uh, you know King Solomon. And uh, I've been there; it's massive, <laughs> and it's actually a replica of what was built back in the city of uh, Belz. I don't know where in Poland or somewhere there. And there is a uh, Gerer. It's called the Gershul in uh, Jerusalem also, which has 20,000 seats. That's, I think, the world's largest synagogue. It's massive. Uh, some are massive. Some are beautifully designed with interior ceilings. And it's just amazing. You can visit. I visited in Budapest one massive, beautiful synagogue. And uh, look at ancient synagogues. Just the, the exterior and the interior are just amazing. And this is one of the ideas, because just as the temple was beautiful, so do synagogues, which are somewhat of a replica, home for God, at least in a minor way, should be beautiful. As we see in source number 7, everything given for the sake of the Almighty should be of the most attractive and highest quality. If one builds a house of prayer, it should be more attractive than his own built dwelling. So you have your own dwelling, you make it as nice as you want, but then when we come to build a temple, the community should get together and contribute and build even something more attractive because it's for God, it's for our Creator. And this goes back to the temple in source 8, to exalt the house of our Lord. Ezra, who lived in the beginning of the time of the second temple, says that there is this mitzvah to exalt the house, to glorify and make the home of God as beautiful as possible. At that time, the Jewish people had just come up from exile. They weren't very wealthy. But later, Herod, who was a later king for the, uh, in Israel, in Judea, 
And he reconstructed and rebuilt the temple, making it so beautiful. As the Talmud says, whoever has not seen the temple that Herod built has never seen a beautiful building in their life. It was made from marble, from gold. Um, as we continue to see in Source A, they must make it beautiful and attractive to their potential, according to their potential. And if possible, it is a mitzvah to plate it with gold and to magnify of all of its aspects. And indeed, the Mishnah says, I believe, that there was a, uh, a thick layer of gold coating uh, the temple. Herod had access to, to, to money galore. It was beautiful. And in each community, they should contribute to the synagogue, making it as attractive and beautiful as possible. Why? Because the temple is a house for God, just like... The original temple. It's not just a place to pray and we need a place to get together. That too is a house for God. Another idea. In every synagogue, source number nine, in the synagogue, an ark where the Torah scroll is placed should be constructed in the direction to which the people pray in that city. So the synagogue has a sanctuary where we pray and we pray towards Jerusalem. So here in America, we're praying uh, east towards Israel. Uh, it's not exactly east. It should really be east-south, uh, maybe a little bit. Uh, if you're in South America, maybe a little bit east-north. Uh, if you're in uh, Russia or the other side of Israel, then it's more west-north, I think. Depending where you are. If you're in Australia, it's different. So wherever Jews are praying... Um, when the Jews were in Babylonia, they were to the east of Israel, so they were praying towards west. Um, so at the front of the synagogue, east, there should be an ark. And in this ark, says Maimonides, that is where the Torah scroll is placed. So when we're praying, we're facing the Torah, the, the Torah scrolls. Now, what does this represent? That is, this got to do with anything. It's continuing at source 9. When the original temple was built, God says, make an ark and deposit in the ark the tablets, the two tablets with the Ten Commandments handwritten by God. And you shall place the dividing curtain in front of the ark with the tablets. You shall bring there on the inner side the ark of the testimony. So they were to construct in this, in this temple that they built first in the desert and later in Jerusalem, when they were more established, they had this chamber called the Holy of Holies, where there was this ark, this box, with actually a Torah scroll that Moses wrote, and the two tablets with the Ten Commandments that God ins inscribed. And in front of it, it was covered, it was concealed, it was this curtain, it was called a parochas. And that is why in every synagogue we do the same. We have an ark, we have a closet kind of, uh, where we put the Torah, we don't have the Ten Commandments and the tablets, so we put a Torah, the Torah scrolls, and we put a wall, we put a curtain, just as it was in the temple, to conceal it, and only open it at special times. And many art designs will have the Ten Commandments carved out, uh, the two tablets carved out, and maybe some of the wording of each of the first of the Ten Commandments. Or on the parochat, on the curtain, they'll have the Ten Commandments. Why? 
just as it was in the temple. Because the synagogue is a miniature temple. And just as in the temple you had the ark, so too in every synagogue you have the ark with the Torah at the center. Just like it was in the temple. It was at the far west, at the far front of the temple. Deep inside, I mean. Next piece of the temple. In front of that you had the menorah. In front of the ark, front of the curtain you had the menorah and that's why many synagogues have what's called the near tummy the eternal lamp they have a lamp coming down from the ceiling some sort of small candle which is usually be an, used to be an actual lamp now it's usually just uh, electric uh, a light in front of the ark representing the menorah of the temple source number 10 the holy ark should be on a higher level than the rest of the sanctuary it should be like on a platform preferably. And that's why many synagogues have like a stage at the front of the synagogue before the ark. Because the Levites in the temple stood on the platform which ascends from the courtyard of the Israelites to the courtyard of the priests when they chanted songs over the sacrifices. It was quite lively in the temple. There was an orchestra of the Levites. They played all kinds of instruments. And there was a choir and they would sing songs, chant chapters of psalms during the services. And they had a, a stage with steps on it. Three steps. They had a platform. And so too, in our synagogues, we replicate this platform preferably. And actually, the Kohanes, when, when it's the holiday time, and they do the priestly blessing, and we cover our faces with the talis, the prayer shawl, and we listen to the Kohanes giving us a blessing... Um, it is done from this platform. And actually, in, in Yiddish, or probably Hebrew also, this ceremony of the Kohens giving us the blessing is called Duchaning. What does Duchan mean? Duchan means a platform. It's called platforming. Even though they're giving us a blessing, because it's done by the platform. They go up to the platform, just like in the, it was done in the temple, so too it's done in the synagogue. Because the synagogue is a house for God, it's a miniature temple, so we do things the same way. Source number 11. After the ark and the eternal lamp and the platform we have in the center. Source 11. A platform is placed in the center so that the one who reads the Torah can stand on it. So in the center of every synagogue you have what's called the bima or balemer. It's, uh, the bima is some sort of a platform in the center of the synagogue with like a table on it. Usually, especially by Ashkenazi shows, it'll be a bit slanted so the Torah can be laid down and easily read. And this is the Bima. What does the Bima represent? Continuing in Source 11, you shall make the altar. They had, back from the menorah, you had the altar, this big edifice, which was 15 cubits, 15 feet high, on which they brought the sacrifices and offerings. And the bima is representative of the altar. It is positioned in the center, just like the altar was positioned in the center of the temple courtyard. So the setup of the synagogue is very precise. It should be in the center, or somewhat in the center, just like the altar, which was this protruding kind of stage uh, table in middle of this temple courtyard. And finally, one more piece is the separation of genders. Source number 12, in the temple, the courtyard was surrounded by balconies so that women could look on from above. 
and the man from below so they will not come to conduct themselves with inappropriate levity. And that is what the Talmud says about the, 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 the temple in Jerusalem. The men and women were always separate. At one point, they actually built a balcony around so the women can be up and there should be this uh, they shouldn't be mingling in the temple. And similarly, in traditional synagogues, we'll have this separation, whether on the balcony or side by side with a divider in the middle, but it all traces back to the original holy temple in Jerusalem. So that's section two. And there are other minor uh, elements as well. We don't have time to go through everything, but many ideas in the architecture uh it being beautiful and the setup of the interior of the synagogue traces back to the original holy temple because the synagogue is a home for God, a miniature temple. And that's why we turn to say, say, uh, section 3, how we behave and dress in a synagogue uh, is in accordance with the house of God. We treat it with respect and reverence. Um, there is a tradition that... Uh, one of the Rishonim, uh, the teacher of Rashi, we know Rashi, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, great commentator on the Torah, so his, I believe it was his teacher, Rabbi Yaakov ben Yakar, is told that, I guess he had a nice long, thick beard, and he would sweep the front of the synagogue near the ark with his beard. Now the beard is very holy, and we, we discussed the beard in, in a different lesson, how what it represents. And cleaning the synagogue was such a sacred task that it was an honor for him to use his beard as a broom. Now, I don't know if that was uh, uh, instruction that we should all do, but the concept that a synagogue is a sacred home for God and we should be dedicated uh, to its upkeep. Source number 13. Let's go through some of the laws about synagogue uh, behavior. Hello, Karina. Welcome. We're discussing today's synagogues. And the reason why I chose to discuss synagogues is because we find ourselves in the nine-day period leading up to Tisha B'Av, which will be marked on Sundays, Saturday night and Sunday, which marks the destruction of the first and second temple. That's no coincidence that they both happened on the same exact day because it was divinely orchestrated. And synagogues are a mini temple. So source number 13, you shall venerate my sanctuary. In the book of Leviticus, God instructs the Jewish people that it's my sanctuary, it's my home, so it should be venerated. And this is a warning to treat synagogues and all places dedicated to the service of God, especially the ones used by the public. Not just your own booth in your home where you pray or do holy things, but something especially used for the public with reverence. And how we behave, how we dress in a synagogue, men should have uh, should cover their heads, and um, preferably be dressed more modestly, and behave in a more respectful and holy way when in a synagogue. Well, to nowadays synagogues are um, set aside not just for prayer, but also for communal events, and thereby. Perhaps it is not 100% the same, but the actual sanctuary words, primarily for prayer, should definitely be 
um, fall under these laws. So, number 14. Synagogues should be swept clean and mopped. All the Jews in Spain, the West, Babylonia, and Israel are accustomed to light lamps in the synagogues. This is an ancient tradition of lighting lamps in the synagogue. There are many memorial boards hanging in synagogues in memory of different people because, because it's the house of God. When, we, when lighting candles, it is a way of respect, bringing light to this home, that it should be a place of light and uh, illuminance. Um, that is a way of honoring God by bringing light and lighting candles in his home. So this became a tradition. Originally, actual maybe oil candles or uh, oil flames or candles and now electric lights bringing light to the temple. So if someone had passed, we want that there should be light in the synagogue, which is God's home, in honor and memory of the person who passed. So that person who passed is contributing to glorifying God's name by bringing light to his home. There's always, should be a uh, shamish, a warden who looks after the guardian of the temple, making sure everything is in order, everything is clean, there shouldn't be garbage and dirt around, it should be well kept up as befitting the home for God. Called the shamish. A very important job. When I was uh, studying in yeshiva, uh, the synagogue is also the study hall. Big study hall where we would sit and study the whole day. And of course, we would get drinks and uh, the, the room would get somewhat dirty. But also, besides having a cleaning crew, we had some of the students which would every night clear up all of the books because many books when you're studying you're taking books off the shelf there's a big library and people are students are checking things up and uh, one of my jobs or i was one of the those that had the job to take care of the library and 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 put the book collect the books and put them back in the right place on the shelves and make it beautiful and uh, yeah we got paid a bit for our for our work but it was more of an honor to be contributing to the upkeep of the appearance of God's home. Continuing in source number 15, the sanctity of a synagogue is very great, and we are commanded to fear the one who dwells in them. So it's not the actual synagogue, but it's the one who dwells in the synagogue who's make, who we are venerating by upkeeping his home. Source number 15. A person who has to enter a synagogue to call someone should recite some Torah so that he will not have entered for his personal reasons alone. You don't just walk into a synagogue for no reason just to look around or to even call somebody because it's the house of God. We don't just ignore God when we come into his home. So we should sit down, study some Torah or listen to a lecture and then you can call your friend. We shouldn't use a synagogue as a shortcut or just, you know, if it's raining outside so to go in or it's hot to cool off. We can, but we should say some Torah. We should study something. And if one he should wait uh, a while, and if and if he does not know how to study, he should wait a while inside, since spending time in the synagogue is one of the aspects of the mitzvah. Even just spending time there, sitting down, that's also something special. And I want to welcome Emma and Mark and Stan. Uh, I just want to mention that today is the yard side, is the anniversary of the passing of one of the 
one of the members of the Lunch and Learn. Lunch and Learn started over four years ago where we began to study first in person. And Igor uh, Berzak would come, uh, I believe for a few years, participating in every almost every uh, lesson. And it was an honor to know him. Today is the, on the Jewish calendar is his yard side, the day of his passing, the fifth day of Av, which is a very special day. It's also the day of passing of the Arizal, the great Isaac Loria, the great Kabbalist, uh, who lived uh, 500 years ago and buried in Tzfat in Israel. And um, today's Torah lesson is dedicated to his memory. His name was Yisrael, Israel, daughter, uh, son of Nechama. I think his father's name was Fival. And uh, I'm sure he feels us studying Torah together. Those that remember him, we dedicate today's lesson to his memory. So, the synagogue is not just a place to use as a shortcut. It is a holy place. And if we have to enter the synagogue, we should also spend some time there, study some Torah, open a book, a sitter, say, say some verses to acknowledge the owner of this home, the home of God. Source number 16. The inhabitants of a village who desire to sell their synagogue in order to build another synagogue with the money or to buy an ark or Torah scroll must establish as a condition of the sale that the purchaser not use the building for a bathhouse, a leather works, a mikvah, or a laundry. The holiness of the synagogue stays forever. And even if... Um, the inhabitants of a village, and it says specifically a village, as we'll see later, it's not so simple to sell a synagogue. But in a village, perhaps it, it, it would be permitted under certain, certain circumstances, but it is only on the condition that the synagogue is not going to be future, you know, later used for a inappropriate and not respectful function, activity. As a bathhouse, mikvah, laundry, leatherworks, this is not a clean and um, befitting activity for a synagogue, even if it's not in use anymore. Holiness doesn't leave. The holiness is there, it's there. It's like a pair of tefillin or a Torah scroll, which is no longer usable. We don't throw it out. It's buried lovingly in the ground because it's, it retains its holiness. So, before anyone sells a synagogue, uh, they need to consult a competent rabbi. Another example is source number 17. Um, besides dress and hair, head coverings, what about weaponry? What about coming into synagogue with a sword, with a gun? Israeli soldiers, if you're in Israel, they're walking around all the time with their ammunition. Can they go into a synagogue and pray? So actually, this is talked about a lot, and won't get into all of the details, um, but Source 17 tells us, points to a story in the Torah, he arose from a mitzvah assembly. This is referring to Pinchas. Pinchas was the grandson of Aaron the high priest. And at a certain point, he needed to uh, take care of some business. 
for for uh, important matter. So he arose from amidst the assembly who were in the synagogue or study hall, and he took a spear in his hand. Says the Talmud, from here it is derived that one does not enter the study hall or prayer house with a weapon, because the prayer house and a synagogue is a place of peace, it is a place of longevity, a place of prayer where where we pray for long life. And just like in the temple, by the altar, metal was not allowed to come in contact with the actual structure of the, of the altar. Because it is an edifice, it is a structure used for sacrifices which are meant for atonement. To lengthen the days of man, and metal in, in swords is created to shorten the life of man. So these things don't go together. And actually, when they would clean the altar from the things, uh, they, they had to use a shmata, they had to use a cloth, and not a metal um, piece, you know, smooth piece, whatever they're called. And so too in the synagogue, um, ammunition shouldn't really be used during prayer. Now, of course, it's an, if, it, if it's safety or if it's for protection, then if it's necessary, it would be permitted generally, but perhaps it should be concealed, should be covered. But having open swords and ammunition, that's not the theme. That's not the, the atmosphere in the synagogue. It's the house of God. This is a place of peace. You know, King David wanted to build a temple, but... He was a holy man, but he was a man of war. He had blood on his hands. He had to conquer and, and fight off the enemies. He did good things, but at the end of the day, his hands were bloody. And God says, your son, King Shlomo, as we studied about him previously, his name is Shlomo from the word Shalom, peace. He is a man of peace. He will build a temple. The temple is about peace. So absolutely, if it's necessary to provide safety, that can be done, but it's more in a covered and concealed manner generally. Source number 18, it is proper to compare the donations to a synagogue to the donations for the construction of the tabernacle. Because our sages commonly compared the synagogue to the temple. So donations to a synagogue, to the upkeep of a synagogue, that's like, imagine contributing to the holy temple, which the Jewish people did in an amazingly a generous fashion. When the first temple was being constructed, the tabernacle, the Jewish people gave all of the materials. There was Daivahoser. There was it was an abundance more than necessary, and they had to put out a call saying, Stop, we have enough, we don't need any more. And so to every synagogue, being a replica, a miniature temple, a house for God where he rests. giving donations to the synagogue, for the upkeep of the synagogue, for the services, for the activities of the synagogue, this can be compared to the donations given to the Holy Temple which stood in Jerusalem. And just like then, everybody participated. This, should, this is a communal duty to build a synagogue, as we saw before from Maimonides. Moving on to our final section, section titled prayer which perhaps is the the the, the first and um 
primary function of the synagogue, although today synagogues are more like community centers, and there's usually a study a study hall or a, a um, auditorium or some sort of uh, banquet hall, dinner hall where functions can happen, where family celebrations can occur, like a bris or a dinner or bar mitzvahs um, and so on. As well as sometimes a funeral might take place in a synagogue or eulogies will, would be held. But prayer is uh, perhaps uh, the main function of the synagogue because that's how prayer should be done in a communal fashion. That's the optimum, the, op- the, the best way for it to be done. So source 19 tells us, it is a great mitzvah to pray in a synagogue. Prayer can be done anywhere, but it's a mitzvah to pray in a synagogue. Even when praying alone, even if no one's in the synagogue. Just being in the synagogue building and praying is special. Because it is a holy place. Why is it holy? Because it's God's home. God dwells there. One should designate a specific synagogue in the town in which to pray. So somebody should have, this is my synagogue. Just like you have your PCP, you have your primary uh, care physician or a provider. You have your primary synagogue. Yeah, when you're on vacation, you're there. It's good to visit other synagogues and pray wherever you are on the road. But at home, you should have your synagogue. This is your designated place. Just like everybody should have their rabbi, their teacher. Uh, they should have their synagogue. This is theirs. Where they contribute to, where they pray in, where where they uh, can belong to. And because it is a designated place to pray, uh, that also impacts the design of the temple, of the synagogue. Source 20. A synagogue should have windows. This fosters the devout intent of one's heart. For one gazes heavenward, and his heart is humbled. By looking to heaven, it reminds us of God. When there are windows in the synagogue, hopefully it won't distract us, maybe if they're higher up, and that can help have more intense. It is desirable that a synagogue have 12 windows. They need not all be in the east. It is preferable that there be openings on all sides. These 12 windows are corresponding to the 12 tribes because each of the 12, 12 original tribes, which all Jewish people come from, the 10, 12 sons of Jacob, of Yaakov, they each represent a unique path and form of serving God. And the 12 windows represent uh, all the prayers are going up to God in 12 unique fashions. But either way, I'm not sure every synagogue uh, does this, but it's definitely brought as a custom to have windows in a synagogue for this reason. This traces back to Daniel, actually, Daniel the prophet who we studied about, who was later thrown in the lion's den, and when he, in Babylonia, would pray towards Jerusalem, he would have opened the window to pray. So that's where it's sourced. Source 21. Synagogue can have a wondrous effect on those who pass through its doors. This can't be compared to a stream of water. Just as a person who is ritually impure enters a stream and becomes purified, a person who enters the synagogue full of sin can exit full of meritorious deeds. So it's like a mikvah. 
like a car wash, just like a mikvah is a spiritually cleansing experience. Visiting a synagogue, especially often, can be elevating, can be transformative. And I can tell you that we see clearly that those that visit the synagogue more often tend to get more involved and in touch with their souls and with uh, Jewish community life. And that's the way it was by the original temple. There was a mitzvah at least three times a year for all Jewish people to make a pilgrim to Jerusalem to have that elevating and godly experience where God was felt in a very great way. It was great miracles happening in the temple. It was God's presence was resting in the temple. And so too in every synagogue. It is a holy place and can be transformative and as we see, source 22, God says, oh, through the prophet Solomon in the book of Proverbs, Mishle, fortunate is the man who diligently attends my doors. Diligently, the diligence, continuously. He who finds me has found life. How do you find him? In the synagogue. And he who attends synagogue regularly has found life. Interesting, by the way, that uh, even if someone can't make it to the synagogue, it does say in Code of Jewish Law that one should try and pray at the same time that they are praying in the synagogue. So mentally, he, and he, could, uh, or, he or she can join the prayers of the synagogue. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi said to his sons, Go early and come late, and go late and enter the synagogue, so that your lives will be extended. He has found life, the verse says. By spending time in the synagogue, there's a blessing for longevity, for long life. And how we behave in the synagogue contributes to that. When one behaves in the synagogue in a proper way, that also is a source of blessing. I once read that there were hundreds of synagogues desecrated and vandalized during Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. Uh, there's one synagogue that was speared. And in that synagogue, they were very careful that there was no idle talk going on. If somebody was talking during the prayers, they would shush him, they would send him out or remind him or her to keep quiet and focus on the prayers. There's time for talking later, before and after because it is a house of God and it should be with respect. Source 23. A, a synagogue in a metropolis, in a big city, since it was constructed for the sake of all the people in the world, so that anyone who comes to that country can come and pray in it, it is considered as the property of the entire Jewish people, and it can never be sold. Even if the money to build the synagogue was donated by the inhabitants of the city alone, they do not have the authority to sell it. Here's a fascinating halakha. There can be a big city and everybody in the city, the inhabitants, contribute large sums to build a magnificent and beautiful, stunning synagogue. But being that it's in such a central place and people will come to visit and they have more than the right to enter and pray along with their fellow Jews, so to sell it off is not so simple. And the starting point would be that it would be forbidden. Because it's not yours to sell. It is like belonging to all of the Jewish people. 
well, perhaps there are certain circumstances that it can be done, especially if the entire Jewish community moved away. You know, you got to sell it. You can't, otherwise, it might. So there, there are certain ways to go about it. And again, a competent rabbi needs to be consulted. But the premise is that it does belong to everybody. And really, a synagogue, every Jew should be welcome to synagogue, no matter who built it. The community has a synagogue, whether someone did contribute or did not contribute. The synagogue is a home for God, built by the people on behalf of the entire Jewish community. Whoever comes to live there in future generations, other from other places, it is not a personal property. It is a communal building. At one point, to keep up the synagogue, uh, the, the there was a system of membership. You got to pay membership, however much it was. Um, and if you didn't, if you weren't a member, or they would sell seats. And if you didn't buy a seat, especially for high holidays, uh, then you had no right to enter. And there would be a guard at the door saying you can't come in because you didn't pay. And what if someone did not have money to pay, or for whatever reason is visiting, they would sometimes not be allowed to pray. And that turned a lot of Jews away, especially those that weren't regulars. And that, I believe, is not as common today because a synagogue is for every Jew. Yes, the synagogue needs income to be kept up, and that is through donations, um, by getting uh, honors in the synagogue, the people pledge charity in memory of people in honor of, of celebrations, and generally contributing continuously to the upkeep of the synagogue building and its activities, but not that if someone does not, for whatever reason, they are banned, God forbid, from the synagogue. The synagogue belongs to every Jew. And you don't need an excuse to come to synagogue. A Jew is in synagogue because they belong in synagogue. And even if someone didn't come to synagogue for tens of years... They can show up to the synagogue and be welcomed and embraced. No one should say, what are you doing in the synagogue? Every Jew belongs in the synagogue. When they come, they're coming back home. We'll conclude with the final source. Just like there is the synagogue, which is a miniature temple, there is also an additional mini-temple that is spoken about more in the Kabbalistic teachings in Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy. And that is the following. Source number 24. You shall make for me a temple and I will dwell in them. Going back to the four, first source from the original temple. God says they shall make for me a sanctuary and I will dwell in their midst among them. In Hebrew it doesn't say I will dwell in it. In the structure. It says, I will dwell among them. Says the Shalom, says the Kabbalist, means that God dwells in the heart of each Jewish man and woman. Each person is sacred. And the home in which they dwell is also sacred. Every man has a soul. And in the Shama is a piece of God. God dwells in our midst. And in our home, we should transform our homes to be a mini temple. We should prepare our homes as a holy and sacred place. How is that? 
by bringing God into our homes, by having kosher food, by observing the Shabbos, and saying blessings, and praying, and having charity boxes, and having a mezuzah, and bringing godliness into our homes. We make our homes and ourselves into a miniature temple where God rests. God wants everyone to be a temple. God wants to live in every single one of us. That wraps up today's lesson about who invented the synagogue, how it got started, the significance, and its holiness. The holiness of the Bet Knesset, the temple. The holy temple, the miniature temple. Thank you for joining. Um, if anyone has any questions, feel free. Stan, I hope you feel uh, well and everyone should have a quick and easy uh, recovery and be able to join us once more in person. Everyone watching, it's great seeing you. If you could take a moment to share this post so others can benefit from it as well. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Hope to see you next week. And this Friday night we have TGIS. Thank God it's Shabbos, a community Shabbat dinner, 8 o'clock p.m. at synagogue. And we will use our synagogue for prayers as well as celebrating Shabbos together as a synagogue. Be well, Zai Gesund, and thank you for joining.